for the 2009-2010 year. We're very happy to be back in Thompson Library in our new space. And today we have um, a special program by Ann Hamilton, who is an artist and a professor of art here at Ohio State. And I don't know if you know, but Ohio has a program called Percent for Art, where um, over a certain amount of money, if you're renovating or building a new building, a certain percentage goes to an art installation. And Anne is doing the floor installation that will be in our West Reading Room, which is two floors above us right now. And uh, she's going to tell you more about the context of that. So thank you. Anne Hamilton. Thank you. Hello, everybody. So just like the library, which is like melding uh, 19th century technology and 21st, our presentation today has some of the similar challenges of that joint. <laughs> so um, it's a little bit of an improvisation. But as Nancy said, thank you, I um, am uh, was asked why the building was under construction to come in and begin to think about making a project or a proposal in response to the new library. And one of the things that um, struck me as I came in and saw the new plan is the way that these two public spaces which open up and become the social space that we're in the middle of right now is the way it was just like a spine of a book, that the old book tower which is still the center of the structure here, now has these two open-faced pages on either side of it. And so the um, object that we associate to the library is actually in some ways patterning the space that we inhabit now. And I started to kind of um, respond to that and think about um, the space of the page and what happens when we read and how much time all of us spend reading, if you think about what quantity of your day is spent actually reading either a screen or reading a piece of paper, and what is the experience of that kind of falling in and that kind of immersion, immersion between the covers of um, a book, or I don't know now how you refer to the screen in the same way, but the vocabulary will come with that. So I started thinking about um, one of the great pleasures that I take in the library and one of the privileges I feel like um, we all participate in as we have access to the library is the ability to browse the stacks. And what happens when you browse, of course, is that things that aren't next to each other in your mind are next to each other on the shelf. And so as a consequence, often you're going Everybody has had this experience of going to the shelf looking for one thing, and the red book on the way drew your attention to it. And that, in fact, is the book that you needed that you didn't know that you need. And I think so much of research, um, while it may be directed, is um, the beneficiary of those kinds of gifts and those kinds of coincidences and serendipities. And so I started thinking about how um, we all use the library really different, we use our reading really different, differently and for different purposes, and it takes many different forms. So I was gonna um, show you, maybe we'll switch to the PowerPoint. I'm a Mac person, so this is one of those joints, not just of technology, but operating systems. <laughs> uh, and um, one of the things, um, the kind of preparing for today caused me to do is go back and look at my own work as a visual artist and look at um, how many um, projects I've been doing that have been um, really revolving around the experience of reading and what happens when we read. Um, 
this is actually a pinhole photograph of um, that was taken in the public library in Philadelphia of a series of readers and their 45-minute exposures of people sitting at the table and reading. And um, I started thinking about like what happens is when you read that there's this still time that's captured between those pages that we might not otherwise have. Uh, browsing the stacks. This was actually when everything was in storage. And we all remark on our reading really very differently. You're not supposed to do this to library books <laughs> for all the librarians here, no. <laughs> um, but I think all of us come up with our own notation system for remarking upon those things in a text that stop us, that catch us in some way. And this is, um, actually, this is from one of my favorite books. This is a book by Susan Stewart, and she wrote, um, it's a book on poetics and embodiment and the body. And I've read this book three times. And every time I read it, I try to go back with a different pen because each reading or rereading, um, one remarks very differently because you're at a different place in time. And um, at one point, we actually went into the stacks here and we started looking for all the books that were um, heavily um, marked, had a lot of marginalia in them and uh, wanted to almost separate those out as a separate collection. But I think somebody's back there filtering as things get checked in and out. Um, but it's very interesting to see the evidence of the reader in the book and um, the way that then that kind of anonymous reader comes forward as an individualized hand. Okay, thanks. Um, in my own work, which has mostly been in large-scale um, ephemeral installations, there's often been a person who activates and animates the time of that installation, and they're engaged in some something. And in this case, um, I don't have the pictures of the installation, but this is a piece that um, was in New York, and a person was reading, but they were reading with a hot stylus in their hand. So as they read, the text actually burned away and actually became smoke in the air and was reabsorbed by um, the floor, which in that case was a bed of horsehair. And so this material, which actually grows out of bodily memory, which is from the tail of the horses, actually absorbed the memory of the burned text. And there was, so there's a material transformation. But what was really interesting to me in some ways is as the cursor sort of burned the words away, it was like they were returned to the space, they were returned to air, they were, were returned to an oral space. And I started thinking about that transformation of word to material and from a printed word back into an oral space. Okay. Yeah. Um, I mean, you could say that I'm a defiler of books, I suppose. <laughs> this is an, from another project that was years ago in... Um, can you see over there? Can you guys see those images? Okay. This was a project uh, in... Uh, Charleston, South Carolina, and these books are published, there's a series of blue books that um, account for the relationship between the shoreline and the sea, and who owns this space in between, which is, I think, the space most artists try to operate in. And um, there was a figure in this work, and they were erasing these books from back to front. So they were taking the mechanically produced text and leaving a residue, which was the result of a pink pearl eraser and saliva. And it was kind of clearing the space for um, another story. 
and um, <laughs> in the sort of tradition of altering or using the ground of the page as um, a place of transformation. This is one where each alphabetic letter is covered by a grain of sand from a beach um, near where I lived in San Francisco. And um, there were a series of books, each book which was remar was marked by these grains. And I think that uh, like what's happening here is that each of those grains of sand, it's from a black beach, is different. While an alphabet, uh, although we have many fonts available to us, we still have in the Roman alphabet this repetition of recurrent forms. And this, the sands, none of them repeat. And so the hand of the, repeat, the, hand of the reader is that um, enters this uh, reproducible um, text in a way and marks it through material in this. I don't think I said that very well, but it's the relationship about how does a how does a page or how does a book really reflect with some material trace the mark of the reader, which is always changing and always different, and books come to have different uses in different times. Uh, so how does the how does this language, which is printed, become therefore tactile? And um, one of the projects that I did actually. Um, prepared the books by cutting between each line so that when you started on one corner of the upper left hand of the upper left hand margin where you would begin reading you could pull out the page in one continuous line like a, um, a thread and in this case it became yarn like and they were wound into bodies so there was a shift from the two-dimensional plane of the page to the body of a three-dimensional hand size object um, I haven't done a lot of um, permanent public pieces. You can see all of these things I'm describing quickly are very process-oriented, and they have an ongoing time, just like reading is ongoing. But I was asked um, a number of years ago to do a project in the San when they were renovating the San Francisco Public Library, and I worked with uh, a collaborator, Anne Chamberlain, an artist in San Francisco. And we started thinking about um, how the card catalog is used. We started thinking about how the card catalog is, as you know, not present in this library as a physical object. And the relationship between a tactile uh, form of access and one that's um, online and is digital. And we're, st we're kind of living very much in the middle of that transition, and there's a lot of conversation in the library about that. We're, this is the home of OCLC, uh, where the digital basis of, um, of the way we come to have access for books is actually much of that processing happens here. And so what we did was we took the um, one of the card catalog collections it was made available to us by the librarians and the librarians in San Francisco were very divided half of them thought we were like graffiti artists and we were defiling these cards and half of them thought that it was very poetic and what we did was we asked the community of readers to select a card from the card catalog you can show the next one Jamie thanks and to um, select a text from the book that the card references or from an associationally related book. So in some ways to enact on the card the same thing that happens when you go through the stacks and you find unlike things together. 
And out of that, we covered, go ahead. Um, these are some of the samples. So what you, what you see is you see the handwriting really literally enveloping all the um, information that allows you to access that book um, in the collection and go to the shelf and actually find it. And that, those cards then accumulated and they became um, a wall and it, that wall goes three stories through the museum and it divides um, the public space from the place where the books are stored and where they're, um, you have to request. So the space or those shelves you don't have access to in the public space are divided by this membrane which carries the hand of all these different readers. Okay. And then in, um, more recently in Seattle, the, um, there's a, a new library that was built by Rem Coolhouse. It's quite an amazing engineering um, feat, really, the way this building has been built and, and the way the energy works in it. But I had a very small part of it. And down on the ground floor in the area that's um, foreign languages, literacy, English as a second language, where, those collect where that collection is stored, I made a proposal to actually make a floor. And so um, this shift from working on the page and working in something that's on your lap and at the proximity of your hand, thinking about that tactile space and just shifting it and bringing it to a building by placing that surface under your feet. And so what I did was uh, work with, actually I worked with a lot of the graduate students here at OSU who were studying in different, um, and whose first language uh, we had, let's see, whose first language was not English. And I asked them to um, look at the collection in Seattle and find the companion volumes here. And in 13 different languages, we selected the first line from books in the collection. So in some way, and then, okay, detail. I'm getting ahead of myself. And then what we did is each of those first lines um, in the 13 languages were carved into a wood floor. The wood actually came from Ohio. And um, they're all raised. So rather than being carved in, which is, I think, how we typically think about something being engraved or marked, these are raised. And so in being raised, they're very much more materially related to an old um, piece of wood type. And, and so following that logic, they're also turned backwards. So they're inverted because if you actually inked this floor and printed it, it would print legible. But to walk on it, it's, it's um, backwards facing. And um, this is how it looked when we first installed it a couple of years ago. There were 25,000 people that showed up in downtown Seattle for the opening of this library. 25,000 people. So it was like this amazing community support that built this building. Um, okay, Jamie, thanks. But what I anticipated and hoped for and what happened over time is that this um, accumulation of all these first lines from the collection actually then also accumulates over it the wear of its users. And so while the um, floor goes underneath the shelves and through this area, the areas that are you can walk on are becoming very heavily marked as if they've been inked and it's been wiped and inked and wiped and inked and wiped. So that just as the selection of these lines in some ways is a document of where the library was 
at that moment that we made our selection and the shape of that collection. Um, over time, it reflects um, the history of all of its users. Okay. A lot of people take rubbings. A lot of people are trying, you know, try to read backwards. There were some community groups that were very reticent to let us put their language on the floor. I met with a community of readers that uh, were whose first language is um, Russian, and they they really did not want me to put it on the floor, and they did not want people walking on their language. And so it was a quite an interesting negotiation with um, different generations of readers and their attitude towards something being on the floor and, and that I, my argument that something being on the floor does not make it dirt. And um, uh, it, was a, it was a kind of more involved social process than I, I think I initially anticipated. Okay. So here it is um, being well-worn, but I think the wood is not wearing. It's just collecting a lot of dirt. There you go. And so then that brings me forward to the research that I started doing for this library and thinking about um, the spine of the book tower and the historic reading room, which is so beautifully, beautifully renovated, and the more contemporary reading room that is just above us, as Nancy said, and to think about how do you, how can I bring forward into this that system of access and research of um, coincidence that occurs as you use text in different ways. And I um, became quite intrigued and enamored with a book that I checked out um, from the library, which is a concordance on Darwin's history of the expression of emotions in animals and humans. I think that's right. And this is a page from that book. And uh, so what it does is it takes any text, it, takes, it took this text of Darwin's, and it orders it alphabetically. And then it gives you the contextual words on either side of that word. So rather than um, arranging the text in its narrative order, it actually rearranges it in its alphabetic one. And that runs through the center of the page like a spine that connects uh, like to unlike um, by an alphabetic logic. And like eating, eating, eats, ebony, etc. And I started thinking about how that's very analogous to what happens when you browse the stacks. And so that's become the structure of what I'm doing for the floor upstairs. And um, I actually have a sample of it. <laughs> this is the tactile part. So the the one of the things that they discovered is how durable and how strong and actually in um, how well the cork from the historic reading room actually survived, although it was replaced because there was water damage. Um, that old cork floor is um, not only a sustainable material, but really, really durable. And like wood, it actually starts to, it ages really well. It starts to carry the imprint and the history of all of the foots that have walked, the feet that have walked on it. So um, what I did was work um, in conversation with George Acock and the committee to think about how does that cork floor that's in the historic 
reading room come over and be mirrored but used differently in the contemporary reading room that faces RPAC and propose that what we do is um, run a concordance spine of alphabetic words down the center of the room and um, run to the edges of the room the contextual information around that um, word. So then I'm in a huge conundrum. So I have a form, I have a material, I have a system, you know, my system of looking at different texts is through this alphabetic search of the concordance. And at the studio, I'm here with Jamie Boyle. Jamie, hi. <laughs> who we've, uh, we, um, and some others um, who aren't here, but we purchased a software program that allowed us a lot of flexibility in the way we could search Word documents alphabetically and, and find these kind of surprising um, relationships between things. And for me, what was really interesting as, a, as an artist working with is the way that these searches, it's like the act of reading um, through the concordance pro program in some ways becomes an act of writing or becomes a form of writing. And I think that as an artist, I've always been, although we sp I spend, like many of you, my so much of my day writing, I think I'm very nervous about my writing. I think that it's not my first hand. My first hand is more like a sewing hand. And so this way of kind of coming around through the side door to writing is through selecting and finding and juxtaposi juxtaposition has been interesting. Um, and one of the things that we proposed is that there would be a live, a series of live readings on and of the floor once it gets installed. So towards that end, I wanted to um, talk about the conundrum of content and subject, <laughs> which could keep us here for a long time. Um, and um, where what what I've now settled on as the material that I'm going to use. I first actually settled on this book, um, A Little History of the World, and I because I started thinking about how many versions there are of the history of the world. And uh, this is actually a book that was written by a famous art historian, E. H. Gombrich, and he wrote a book called The Story of Art. And before he wrote that book, and that book really came about as a consequence of him being commissioned to write a history of the world for kids. And so, okay. And so this is a cover of the book, and then I don't know if you can see it from where you are, but on the right is the beginning of us um, alphabetically sorting this um, text. Okay, I think that's right. And um, I, you know, I was really drawn to this. I, maybe we should pass the thing out now. Okay. The So, you know, to take anyone, there's this pressure on this project because whatever I choose, whatever text I choose, I remember what, how difficult it was when the library was going through the process of selecting each of the floor tiles that you see out in the main floor. And I remember talking to Wes Baumgarten about 
oh my gosh, you know, like, <laughs> like it's going to be there forever. Um, and so I started thinking about how to use this story, which has a perspective and is written in 1935. Uh, it's pretty European in its perspective, and it's really written f um, without... The language is like, and then this happened, and then this happened, and then this happened. And it's sort of an accounting that accumulates. And um, I actually read it to my son, who's now 14, and we took utter delight in reading this book out loud. So I returned to it for this project. It was also recently republished. Um, and then the next text, um, I started thinking about how what we do when we read is we weave everything we've ever read together with the thing we're reading at that moment. And so how does this metaphor of weaving, of, of something actually um, literally become, how does text become a textile? And so I wanted to find another history of the world or an origin story. And um, I was attracted to one that was really very much about how the world is, a, is the story of the world is woven. And um, I adapted a story that's from the White, White River Sioux. It's called The End of the World. And Jamie's actually passing out some versions of this. Um, and I, I think I'll just read this one out loud, just so you can hear it, because it becomes, these words actually become the spine text for the floor that we're doing upstairs. Um, somewhere in a place where the land and the mountains meet, there is a deep and hidden cave. People have searched for a long, long time, but no one has ever discovered its location. In the cave lives an old woman dressed in animal skin whose face is dry and worn. For a thousand years or more, she has been sitting the way our ancestors did, making a piece of cloth out of dyed porcupine quills for a buffalo robe. Resting beside her, watching, is a black dog. His eyes never wander from the old woman. He is her only companion. A few steps from where she sits burns a fire that began before memories were recorded. Over the fire hangs a pot, the kind made with clay from the earth and used before the white man arrived with iron vessels. In it, the boiling food is good and sweet and red. This meal has been cooking steadily for as long as the fire has burned. All this time, the woman, in her patience, has worked the textile on her lap, kept the fire alive, and tended the food in the ancestral pot. She is so old, it takes her a long time to rise and walk over to the fire. When she is standing with her back turned, the black dog goes to where she was weaving and unravels the work from her cloth. And so, while time passes, she never makes progress, and her quill work remains forever undone. The Sioux people used to say that if the work of the woman ever ends, at the very moment the last quill is used to complete the image and the cloth is finished, the world will come to an end somewhere. So one of the things that became very interesting to us as we started to look at this is how... Um, when you make it alphabetical, it becomes something else, but yet it carries its narrative. 
and um, and how this might weave together with other histories, the Gombrich, which I described, and the next one, um, which is actually a very recent book, uh, Stories of Almost Everyone, which was actually just published this year. And um, it doesn't uh, tell a story from the beginning of time. It's not chronologic in its telling. It's more episodic and more poetic. And um, what I've done actually for today is actually, and what some of you have in your hands, you have excerpts from these three books. And so I wanted to kind of do an experiment with this reading. And rather than be up here at the microphone, I wanted to um, maybe enact on this page a, a selection process that's a little bit like what happens when you're in the stacks, and a little bit what happens um, when you you um, you um, when you read and remark on particular words because of your own history of reading. So, um, yeah. What I want to ask all of you to do is actually take out a pen. And if you don't have any, Jamie has some. Yeah. You guys are all really quiet. Is it because we're in the library or is it it's the microphone? <laughs> because I'm in the microphone. Um, one of the things, I'm just going to, um, actually, I want to read you one of the things that came up. When we did, you can also search with uh, why we get the pens handed out. You have to do this, Cormac. Um, it's like you can search phrases too. And so, like some of the books, like, well, we searched the word alive, which, and this is all from the Galliano book. And uh, Jamie and I were looking at this, and she was like, why, it's interesting, the word alive, because it's every use of it in this book has to do with death. So this is what came up. More dead than alive, burned alive, roast him alive. I prefer to carry on alive, not a Jew alive. Burned him alive, being eaten alive, and um, being skinned alive, left alive. You won't get out alive, and on and on. So it's a really interesting way also when you start comparing text to look at the habits of language and address. So in the Gombrich book, there's the phrase that recurs again and again that says, at the end, at the end. And one of the books I didn't use but considered for this, which is a, a, a memoir of Chief Plenticu, who was head of the Crow Nation and wrote this really kind of extraordinary story because he's his chief, um, his, his tenure as chief really negotiated that joint between living traditional lifestyle, negotiating with the US government, and living in reservation. And his book was full of in the beginning. So it, it, it's, it's like the, the texts reveal themselves through this process to us in different ways. Um, and that actually is maybe has some relationship to how we all read. We all read with different emphasis. So what I wanted to do is um, actually ask each of you to look at the page that you have. Some of you have something from Galliano. Some of you have um, something from the Gombrick. And some of you have the Sioux story. And I wanted you to um, underline a word, a, 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 a small phrase, a fragment of a sentence. Um, not probably a whole sentence, but just those pieces of uh, language. Can you say that? Pieces of language? 
yeah, <laughs> those pieces of language, um, those objects that kind of come forward from the page and underline them or circle them. So, because what we're going to do is we're going to read through and we're going to read through reading only those selections out loud. And so we're going to become this kind of reading concordance. And I think um, what we're going to do is maybe try to get everybody more into the center over here, get you off of your chairs over here and bring you together. And we're just going to go around the room and follow the pattern of language that's created by the pattern of our selections. Jamie and I, while you do that, are going to read a little bit from the concordance of the Sioux story. So what we did was we took that story and um, we made a concordance of it, which means that it has these rhythmic repetitions that become, um, I think, quite beautiful and something else potentially uh, as they're read out loud. Should we do that? So can you do two things at once? Can you read and listen? <laughs> can you mark and read and listen? Uh, let's do this and then, um, how's our time, Nancy? We have 20 minutes, perfect. Okay, so this is from the, um, the Sioux. End of the world. Somewhere in a place where the land and the mountains meet, there is a deep and hidden cave. People have world, White River Sioux. Somewhere in a place where the land and the mountains meet, there is a deep and hidden cave. People have searched for a long, long time, but no one has ever. The land and the mountains meet, there is a deep and hidden cave. People have searched for a long, long time, but no one has ever discovered its location. In the cave lives an old. The cave lives an old woman dressed in animal skins, whose face is dry and worn. For a thousand years or more, she has been sitting, the way our ancestors did, making a piece of. Worn. For a thousand years or more, she has been sitting, the way our ancestors did, making a piece of cloth out of dyed porcupine quills for a buffalo rub, robe. Resting beside her, watching, is a. Been sitting, the way our ancestors did, making a piece of cloth out of dyed porcupine quills for a buffalo robe. Resting beside her, watching, is a black dog. His eyes never wander from the... A piece of cloth out of dyed porcupine quills. Didn't you just read this one? Mm -hmm. oh. yeah, I mean. yeah. Resting beside her, watching, is a black dog. His eyes never wander from the old woman. woman. He is her only companion. A few... Is a black dog. His eyes never wander from the old woman. He is her only companion. A few steps from where she sits burns a fire that began before memories were recorded over the... From the old woman. He is her only companion. A few steps from where she sits burns a fire that began before memories were recorded. Over the fire hangs a pot, the kind made with... From where she sits burns a fire that began before memories were recorded. Over the fire hangs a pot the kind made with clay from the earth and used before the white man arrived with. Fire, alive, and tended the food in the ancestral pot. She is so old, it takes her a long time to rise and walk over to the fire. When she is standing with her back, 
This time the woman in her patience has worked the textile on her lap, kept the fire alive, and tended the food in the ancestral pot. She is so old, it takes her along. Sweet and red, the meal has been cooked steadily for as long as the fire has burned. All this time, the woman in her patience has worked the textile on her lap, kept the fire for a long, long time, but no one has ever discovered its location. In the cave lives an old woman dressed in animal skins whose face is dry and worn for a thousand years or. Quill is used to complete the image and the cloth is finished. The world will come to an end somewhere. So those are just three of the words in concordance. It's a, alive, all, and an. And it's all of the occurrences of those words in the text. Um, another list which is generated is this alphabetic one. And it's interesting just to, I think, hear maybe. Do you want to read that for you? <coughs> maybe just a section. Just tell me when to stop. Yeah. <laughs> Let's keep going. <laughs> A, alive, all, an, ancestors, ancestral, and animal arrived as at, back, been, before, began, beside, black, boiling, buffalo, burned, burns, but cave, clay, cloth, come, companion, complete, cooking, deep, did, discover, dog, dressed, dry, died, earth, end, ends, ever, eyes, face, few, finished, fire, food, for forever from goes good hangs has have he her hidden his if image in iron is it's it it's kept kind lap so the minute you have an alphabetic list um, the other thing that uh, that it generates is the ability to read and repeat the words and to actually form other things from it. So one of the things we've been doing at the studio is, um, should we? I'll do a little, just a little section. Sure. Um, this probably won't make any sense, but um, ancestors and animal arrived back before buffalo boiling burned, cave cloth companion, cooking, did discover, dog, dog dressed, dressed, dyed earth, earth ends, ends, face, few, finished. And it's not that that necessarily what I just did becomes a poem, but all of a sudden there's a way to work with the rhythm of the reading to begin to make something else. Um, and that is what I hope will become some of the public pro programming for the floor once it opens, actually, and is installed next summer. Um, so how are you doing with your underlining out there? Yeah? OK. You guys want to move over? Are you guys ready? The enthusiastic readers. I think just. I mean, you could, I think, just read it once and underline as you would remark without a lot of system. Yeah. Have you, has anyone put a mark on a paper? Yeah? You got, you got to have your marks? You're done? Okay. What about you guys back there? Hmm? Yeah? Yeah, you look like no. Yeah? Okay. Nancy, do you guys want to come over here? 
Oh. Okay. You know that first image I showed of the underlined page? So here's a text, and I'm saying, with a pen in your hand, read through it, and mark those words that come forward to you. Mark the phrases that have a uh, the, that appeal to you because of their sound sense, or because of their meaning, or because of the relationship of how two words sit on the page, or three. So it's very fragmentary, but it's like what you're doing is you're pulling your mark from that text forward to the surface to be read. And what we were going to do is actually go around and read it and see what kind of mixing of these three texts comes together from your reading. Is that clear? <laughs> Come, yeah. Or turn your chairs maybe over here. Yeah. Better do my homework real quick. Somewhere. Some. 
in a cave. Until their oh, the land and the mountains meet. Until their sculptures are finished. Shiny mirrors, belly button of the world, like a tiny star. You don't remember your mother and father. His eyes never wander. In animal skins. The work of a woman. The black dog. Watching the black dog explore the wings for a thousand years. The music. We can't see right at it. Unending wellspring. But you know that too. Grandfathers, 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 grandfathers. These are only companions. In it. Music showed. Watching. Inside the carvings. Grandfathers, grandfathers, grandfathers. Hence the point of the and light up the sky. It will fall further and further back. See those great long lines. She said in her patience. A fire that began keeps on singing. Memory. Alarming frequency. Little Italian footprints. Burning stuff. A great long line of shining men. Repeat from his work. In the ancestral pot. Woman never Moon. To the fire. The beauty. The black dog believes. Light our way back. Dangerous dreams. It moves your head strong. It takes her a long time. It's not on the moon. While time passes, rot. Somewhere lost. A little Italian prince. Like a bottomless well. He bears her with detail. Contagious. Remains forever underground. Daughter of scorn. Mother of slaves. Written by Susan. She never made progress. Born proclaiming peace. Somewhere. Music filled effigies. Old scraps of paper. The slow work remains forever. When a spray on earth ended up on the moon. 
the belly button of the world. You can find the where there is. Dangerous room. The sacred place. An unending wellspring. And special soil of mushrooms. Worth celebrating. Is it worth stealing? Absent-minded. Contagious. With alarming frequency, pillage. Africa. Never Nash. Born proclaiming peace and justice, died bathed in blood. More unjust. Arriving held in peace and justice. <laughs> you have to have the last line. <laughs> Following. <laughs> Great. <laughs> Great. Yeah. That, that was nice. You know, what, we've, what I would love to do is actually in order, in the order in which you were sitting and speaking, is actually to collect these, because that's the order of the selections. And then what we can do is type this up. Mm-hmm. And we've just we've just made a writing, I think. <laughs> so the reading became a writing. Yeah. Great. So, yeah, great. Thank you. Mm-hmm.